Well, good morning. If you have been paying attention the last 20, 30 years or so, one of the things you'll notice that's going on in our society is it feels like conspiracy theories are a bigger thing than they ever used to be, especially about 20 years ago when 9-11 happened. It just feels like conspiracy theories just blew up and they became more mainstream than they ever were, right? And so as you can imagine, people who are into understanding how human beings tick started to ask questions. Why are conspiracy theories so appealing, especially right now in this day and age? And there are a couple of reasons why. Uh, there's no one answer for that, of course, because we are complex human beings. But one of the things that psychologists in particular were beginning to reflect on is that when 9-11 happened, our world just got so much more complex, didn't it? When those two towers fell, our world became less safe. We began to realize that there was just a whole different geopolitical spectrum to everything. There's sociological ramifications, all that kind of thing. Our world became more complex. And so we began to seek out stories to make sense of it. We began to look for ways to make it feel better for ourselves. And so conspiracy theories have an appeal to them, right? This kind of insider knowledge that helps us to feel like we have a little more control of our world. That maybe because we know something, it feels just a little more safe for us. Now my point is, and I don't, I really, really do not want to get into an argument with you about this or that <laughs> conspiracy theory. That's not my point. I'm not trying to debunk anything or that kind of thing. My point is to tell us something about what it means to be a human being that as human beings, we look for stories. We long for some way to make sense of our world, to give things meaning, and to give our lives purpose. We need stories. And conspiracy theories are just one way that that shows up in our lives, in our society. We are in a series right now where we are talking about uh, the seven feasts in Leviticus chapter 23. We had been uh, living in this time of lament as we experience Lent leading up to Easter. And so we're flipping the books on that and we are going to go into a time of partying and feasting and festivals. And so we are looking at the seven feasts in everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. <laughs> right? Yep. So we've talked about um, the, the feast of the Sabbath, right? This gift of God's rest that he gives us, a rhythm of resting every week that tells us so much about what he longs for us and what he desires for us. The feast that we're looking at today is the feast of Passover or the feast of unleavened bread. And uh, one commentator in particular, I, I was really amused by this, he called this the Independence Day for uh, the Israelites, right? This, this is July 4th for Hebrews. This is the day where they celebrate their independence from slavery. And as I was talking about we, how we long for stories, this is why this feast, as another commentator called it, might be the most important feast for the Hebrews because it was all about their story. So this is a feast that we're gonna look at this morning. If you are with me in your Bibles, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 23. I'm sure the pages are worn from that, <laughs> turning to that all the time, right? So Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse four. It says this, these are the Lord's appointed feast. The sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. 
On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is the word of the Lord. Now as we read this, the truth is we can read this passage and uh, gosh, it leaves out so much. Because this, when we read this, the, the authors assume that we've read a lot, that we're familiar with the story that has led up to this point in Leviticus chapter 23. So to really grasp this idea of this Passover and what's going on here and how they're celebrating this, you kind of have to read all of the preceding chapters of Exodus, um, beginning in Exodus 1, really, and maybe even into Genesis. So that's what we're going to do this morning. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. I'm gonna, but we do need to kind of go back and summarize the story of the Exodus, the story of the Israelites. And of course, it begins before they ever end up in the country of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 26, uh, the Lord instructs them to talk about their story and the way it begins is, my father was a wandering Aramean. And the people were wandering. That's their story, right? They were wanderers. They were looking for a home. And as they're wandering, they experience a time of famine. And so they go to a place of plenty, which at that time was Egypt. And they settle down in Egypt. And where, when they are in Egypt, they prosper. They grow as a people. They begin to multiply. And this is threatening to their hosts, the Egyptians. And over the course of generations and generations of growth, the Egyptians decide that no longer are they hosts, no longer are they hospitable to the Jewish people. They are now going to subjugate them. They're going to uh, make sure that they're not a threat to their people, to their society. So they begin to enslave the Hebrews. They subject them to toil and labor, to build their, their cities, and to build their projects. And even worse, they begin to try to control their numbers. One of the most horrifying things about the story of the Israelites is uh, the, the revelation that the Egyptians had free reign when they saw an, a young Hebrew infant male. They were instructed to throw that child into the Nile River. They instructed the, the midwives to kill their children. So infanticide. And you can imagine that somebody who was in this as, as a Hebrew, life was miserable. Life was suffering and toil. They had no future of their own. Every day they woke up, they went to the, the construction sites, they moved rock, they, they sweat, they bled, and then they had the threat of their, their very family being taken away from them, their children being taken away from them. And the word that the Israelites used for this is that life was bitter. Life was bitter. It was toil, it was suffering, there was no hope. And so they cried out to God, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They cried out to him and said, deliver us. And he heard their cry. And he sent to them a deliverer. His name was Moses. And Moses came to the people of Israel and he said that God is going to rescue you, he's going to deliver you. And then God sent Moses to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go, right? 
And of course, he sent 10 judgments to the, the people of Egypt. Each judgment, he gives them a chance to do the right thing, to release his people, to release them from slavery. Every time they say no, until finally the 10th judgment, the most severe judgment, God tells them he will take away their firstborn child, their firstborn of their animals. Severe. But as God does this, he is instructing the Israelites to begin a feast. So this is where we get to the point of the story in Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus 13. And if you really want to understand what we just read in Leviticus chapter 23, you really have to go back to Exodus chapter 12 and 13. And there, as God tells Moses and the people of Israel what he's going to do, this is where he actually institutes the feast. So as he describes what's going to happen, he then tells them, this is what you will do every year from now on. And the basics of the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is essentially that God tells them, you know, take a lamb, kill it, spread its blood over your doorpost, then eat it. And that's the feast of the, of the Passover itself. And they're to do this at, uh, on, on the 14th of the month, and then the next day, they're gonna be prepared to leave. So they're not gonna have time for le to let their, their bread rise, let the dough rise and the yeast, so they're gonna have unleavened bread because they're traveling. They're gonna be ready to go. And, and God tells them, in the future, you're gonna spend seven days eating unleavened bread to remind you of this moment when you were delivered from Egypt, when the judgment that was meant for the Pharaoh passes over you, death passed over you, and now you have a feast to remind you of this. Now, the Passover feast um, has been celebrated for 3,500 years. Let that sink in. 3,500 years people have been celebrating this feast, and it's really rich, and it has changed over the years in a lot of ways. Um, it's become more complex, more rich, than that, that simple outline I just gave you. And I'll be honest, I am not an expert on the Passover feast. Um, there's some pastors who are, are like super pastors and they can sing in Hebrew. Um, I can't sing in Hebrew. I can't lead you through the, whole, the four cups of the, the uh, Passover feast. But what I'm gonna do this morning with you is to kind of take a kind of a high level perspective on this. Sort of a meta view of what Passover feast means and to do that, I'm gonna focus on two things. I'm gonna focus on the sign of the Passover feast and the seal of the Passover feast. The sign and the seal. And I'll explain what those things mean in a moment. But as you read, if you do, and you turn to Exodus 12, as you read the story of it, you'll notice that God gives the Israelites some really peculiar directions, some very specific things about the lamb, for instance. There are a lot of these things, but just to pull out a few, one of the interesting things is he tells them that they can't just eat any lamb. They have to eat a lamb that is pure, that has no spots on it, that is not lame in any way. Okay, that's, that's curious. They, when they eat the lamb, they're not allowed to break any of its bones. That's odd. Um, when they eat, everyone is supposed to eat. No one is left out. All of them are supposed to eat it. 
and they're not supposed to leave any leftovers. Strange, right? You know, if you think about, there's a, there's a practical element to this, right? Because they're about to go out on a journey. Uh, they're going to be traveling. They need to get their calories in, right? The truth is, a, a lame lamb, a spotted lamb, a lamb with a blemish is just as nourishing as an unspotted lamb, isn't it? There's not really anything practical about that. Um, there's not really any good practical reason to not break bones. I mean, why not, right? Um, why does, why can't there be leftovers if everybody's full, right? So when you, when you read these things, you begin to think, what's going on here? Is God just arbitrarily giving them strange directions because that's just his thing? He likes to draw a line in the sand. And he says, don't cross this, right? Is that what he's doing here? Or is there something more? Is there some meaning that God is imprinting into this feast that gives it a greater meaning? Well, obviously, that's what I'm going to say. But even more than me, that's actually what the text says. That's what God himself says. Because there's these kind of meanings replete throughout his instructions to the Hebrews. In Exodus 12, chapter 13, God tells them, as they, he instructs them to put the blood over their doorposts, he says, this blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. He uses that word, sign. And a sign is something that points to something else, right? It's something that is a pointer, a signifier of something greater. So when we think about the instructions that God gives them to have a pure and unadulterated lamb, that's a sign. It points to that this, as they eat this feast, that they are partaking in something that is pure. Purity is important to this, right? When, in, when he instructs them that they, they're, none of the bones are to be broken, there's a sense here that he is instilling in, the, in this uh, ritual, this idea that even in death, there is dignity that this lamb is giving of its life and there is a dignity to its sacrifice. When he says that everyone eats and that there are no leftovers, maybe part of what he's bringing out here is that what this lamb is giving to them is meant for all of them. No one is left out. Everyone is filled to the full. That's a sign, right? So he, he instills these signs into the feast, many more that I, than I can unpack here. It is just rich with all these signs. So as they would celebrate, they would know there was some greater, deeper meaning, that this wasn't just about filling their stomachs. There was a greater, deeper meaning to this Passover feast. And then, you know, as you read Exodus chapter 12 and 13, there's some other things that really stuck out to me. One of the interesting things about Jesus, or I'm sorry, God telling the Israelites at this moment as they do the thing to redo it is this idea that he wants them to relive this experience year after year. It's a reliving of their deliverance, a reliving of death passing over them right? Because they, they eat the same food, they eat the bread, they do the same things that they did that first moment. Now what's interesting about this to me is why not just remember? Why didn't God just say, hey, once a year, I just want you to sit, reflect, and think about this moment. 
He doesn't tell them. He says, I want you to embody it. I want you to eat the same food. I want you to do the same motions that you did that first time. I want you to embody it. He wants them to relive the experience of it. And there's all these little details about how they relive it, right? They eat the bitter herbs in the feast. Part of the reason why they had bitter herbs is because those were the easily accessible herbs, right? So it reminds them of the haste of it. It also reminds them of the bitterness of slavery. That's another sign, right? Um, They roasted the lamb instead of boiled it because, again, you don't got time to boil it. You got to go. So they're going to roast it, right? So every year they roast it again. They roast the whole lamb. They don't cut it in pieces because there's no time to cut. Just shove that thing into the fire, roast it, and eat it because you got to go. No time for the dough to rise. All these little details of, of how they are to cook it help them to relive the experience of having to leave quickly. And then another interesting thing about how God tells them to do this feast is that there are three separate times that he gives them instructions of what to tell their kids, right? And God, God's really smart, big surprise, and he knows what it, the experience of humanity, especially as kids, is curiosity, right? If we do these strange things and we do them over and over again, kids are going to be like, why are we doing this, Dad, right? So um, one of the points that really sticks out to me is in Exodus chapter 13, verse 8, as part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God tells them, on that day, Tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And I'm just imagining, you know, that you're, you're sitting there and 13-year-old Joey's like, Dad, why are we eating this bread? It's disgusting. It tastes like cardboard. I don't get it, right? And then Dad comes down to Joey and says, son, you need to know my story. I was a slave once. I was a slave. And then I was delivered. That was my story. We do this every year because now it's your story. I'm passing on my experience to you. Right? This is what God knows about people. That something, you know, as a parent, I understand this, right? Because there's, there's something really interesting about my experiences. I want my son to know the important things about my life. The things that I find meaningful and important, I want to pass those on to him. My experiences, not even my perspective on the world, I want to give him a chance to know and understand that. God knew that. And he knew that there would be these moments when the kids would be curious, when they would need to be instructed. And part of this is this idea of my story is becoming your story. I talked about a seal. A seal, you know, especially um, in medieval times, there was this idea that people who were dignitaries or important people would have a seal. And sometimes it would be a ring or, or something else that was made. It was made out of metal. And as you passed letters on, you would take the seal and you would imprint your seal on the wax. And the seal was a way of authenticating who it came from because they were hard to replicate. When we talk about seal, what we say is that this is something that is true. 
This is something that is authentic. And this is an important part about the Passover feast, that as God instructs them to do it, he has these, these elements of reliving it and of remembering it because he wants them to know this is true. This is authentic. As you experience it, as you retell it, as you pass on the story, you are sealing it on your hearts. That mark of authenticity, that mark of truth is getting imprinted onto your hearts. Now, one of the interesting things about the history of Passover is that we see in the record, in the record of Scripture, that it was celebrated um, one year after the Exodus. It was celebrated once they got into the Holy Land. And then we don't see very much about it being celebrated. And the implication is that Passover as a feast, and actually many of these other feasts, wasn't really held onto. It kind of waxed and waned for generations and generations. And this idea of it being an important part of shaping the culture of, his, of Israel didn't necessarily manifest and come true, not really until about 500 years before Christ. And then as the Israelites and the Jews came back from their exile in Babylon and other places, they began to take seriously these instructions that God had given. They be, only then did it really become integrated into the cultural uh, landscape of the Jewish people. But this this um, history of, of not really living into this feast points to a greater problem that the Israelite people experienced. Because even though the Israelite people were delivered from slavery, they carried that slavery with them in their hearts. Right? When you see the way that they followed the Lord's instructions, or rather did not follow the Lord's instructions, you begin to get this bigger picture of what the Israelites were facing, the bigger picture of what the problem was that they had. Even though they had been poor, they did not love the poor. Even though they had been foreigners, they did not love the foreigners. Even though God loved them, they did not love him back. And in the New Testament, they had a term for this. They called this bondage to sin, a different kind of slavery. The Israelites experienced this, right, in their selfishness, in their greed, in their lust, in their malice that put them into conflict with their fellow man. They had a different kind of slavery, a bondage to sin, a pharaoh of their hearts. Of course, we too feel this bondage, don't we? when we have those experiences of knowing what the right thing to do is and then feeling like we can't do that thing, even when we know what the right thing to do is. We have that feeling and that experience of being trapped in habits, in thoughts, and we feel like we just don't have that love for our fellow man. That is the experience of bondage to sin. So we need a deliverer. The Israelites needed a deliverer. They needed someone to save them from their history, from their experience of always turning away from God. They needed a new Moses, a new exodus from the slavery, from the bondage in their hearts. Of course, 
1,500 years after God gave the Israelites Passover, Jesus comes onto the scene. And it's remarkable. One of the first things that is recorded in the book of John is that as, as Jesus literally walks onto the scene, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus and John were steeped in this story. They were steeped in the ritual and the practice of Passover. They knew that there was a sign and seal there. So when Jesus comes, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus knew. He knew he was the Lamb of God. He knew he was the one to be sacrificed. So on the week of his death, he comes into Jerusalem, and it is the week of Passover. A lot of scholars think that Jesus, when he calls the disciples together to have a last meal with them, he is actually celebrating Passover one day early. And there's some really beautiful implications to this because what this means is that a day later, as he is hung on the cross, is the exact same moment when the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, less than a mile away, Passover. When you see the story of Jesus on the cross, one of the little details is that when he asked for water to help with his thirst, the sour wine on a sponge that is held up to him is held up on a branch of hyssop. Hyssop was the same branch that was used to spread the blood over the lentils. One of the little details of the story of Jesus on, in the, on the crucifixion was that as he was dying, uh, one of the ways that the Romans would accelerate the process of death and crucifixion was they would break the legs of the people who were hanging because it would, it would cause asphyxiation. But Jesus already died. So his legs were not broken. So as he is laid in the tomb after he has died, in that moment was Sabbath. And in that moment, families across Jerusalem were eating the Passover lamb. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew who he was and he knew the significance of that meal that he had with his disciples. He was looking forward to that next day. So as he sits down with his disciples in that last meal, he celebrates the Passover meal with them, but he takes all of the sign and the seals that the disciples were used to and he changes them. He actually fulfills them because he reveals what they were pointing to. The Jews knew there was some deeper meaning and that deeper meaning was Jesus himself. So when he says in that moment and he breaks that piece of cardboard tasting bread, he says, this is my body and he pours that cup of wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. He is deepening the sign of Passover. No longer is it just a reminder of what God has done for them. Now it is a looking forward to what God will do for them in Jesus himself. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. Relive this. Retell this. Make it a part of your rhythm. Remind yourself frequently of what is true. 
It's a seal. Jesus takes a sign in the seal of Passover and he fulfills them in himself. This is the beauty of what he is doing. This is the beauty of what he is telling them. You are delivered from bondage to sin now because of me, because of my sacrifice, because of what I have done. Death has passed over you. Remember this. Relive this. Make it your story. It's interesting to reflect on why did God give the feast to the Israelites? Why did he give these feasts to them, especially Passover? Why did Jesus tell them to remember this, to keep doing this? I just take us back to that question I asked in the beginning. What are the stories that we tell ourselves? What are the ways that we seek to find meaning in our world? God knows us as human beings. He understands our experience and he knows that if we don't have a story provided to us, we will come up with one. We will make one up because we need that meaning. We long for that kind of meaning. And so we fill in the blanks with these stories that define us. And they're, they may be true stories. They may be false stories. But they are stories, right? So sometimes the story might be that our world is out of control, that there are dark forces who are in charge. And so we have a sign and a seal for that, right? We look to the news. We have these rituals. We look for our favorite YouTuber. We look for the conspiracy websites, whatever it is. Those are a sign and a seal of the story that our world is out of control and we need to find a way to control it. Or maybe the story that we have is that our world has no meaning, that life is what it is, and then we die. And so we find a sign and a seal for that. We look for things like sex, social media, uh, food, all these kinds of experiences that numb us to the horror of death. If we do not have a story, we will make up our own and we will find our own rituals even, our own sign and seal that point us to the truth of whatever story we, in, we embody. And so God has given us a gift of an embodied practice that reminds us of a greater story, of a good story, a story that tells us, first of all, that we were once slaves to sin but now we are free. We have been delivered. That also tells us that we have a savior, that we have a rescuer, someone who's come to take us out of this Egypt, to deliver us from this Pharaoh of our hearts, who has given us a greater purpose in life, who has pointed us to eternity. That is our story. And when we eat every week, as we do here, communion, we see and experience the sign and the seal of the story. We relive the story, and now we can say, this story is part of our lives. This is now your story. And there is a danger, right? There's a danger in doing something repeatedly over and over again. It may become rote. But the danger in that is really when we forget the story, when it becomes disconnected from all this rich meaning, from all the history, when it doesn't become our story, 
That's the danger. And the flip side is there's an, also op- there's an opportunity that as we participate in something, as we relive it, as we know the sign and the seal of this experience, it shapes us. It shapes who we are. You are a free man, a free woman. You are not alone in this world because you have a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior who cares about you. That shapes you. That changes how you live. When we take communion every week, that's the opportunity of it, is to remember and to relive the truth of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul instructs the church to do this, to do as Jesus said, to remember this. And one of the things that he says there in there is to examine yourself. This morning, we get to do this again. We get to relive this experience. We get to do Passover. So I want to take a moment and pause and give us an opportunity to examine ourselves. And really, the question I hope that you ask yourself this morning is what is the story I am listening to? What is the story I believe in? What are the rituals I partake in that remind me of that story? Is it the big story? Is it the good story? The story of God's deliverance from, from sin? Or is it another story? So as we prepare our hearts to once again partake in this meal, I give you the opportunity to examine yourself, to reflect on this story. You have been listening to the Kitsap House podcast sermon series, a Kitsap House production. We are located in Port Orchard, Washington, with in-person worship every Sunday at 1730 Southeast Mile Hill Drive inside the Raw Gym in the Town Square Mall. Services are 10 a.m. For more information, go online to kitsaphouse.org. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you, and God bless.